不过人家也不假，阿斯特拉国罗 ，twenty fifteen。欢迎来到二零五零年的澳大利亚。Welcome to Australia in twenty fifteen. In this future, there are three main languages spoken: English, Pitjantjara, Mandarin, and the cultural climate of the country has changed. This is Yukalara in the future. It's located in southeastern Australia, about an hour from the nearest city. Seven siblings live here on a plot of land that they inherited from their great grandmother. It's not always easy to live with your family, but they try to get along. Welcome to Modcast. In each episode of this series, you'll be introduced to one of the siblings who each tread a different path for the future. Today we meet Kai. Hi, my name is Kai.、Uh, I build virtual worlds.、Um, I'm an activist, mostly for climate adaptation.、Uh, my dad was actually one of the first climate refugees. I'm Anna, and I'm your guide to Kai's world. Kai is 18 years old and is driven by the core value of equality. They are on a quest for love and are currently on the Hypertrain's dating show, hopeful of finding their forever person. In 2050, our understandings of relationships and family might be more closely tied to our mobility than we realise. I'll speak to researchers about how our society is moving in 2050. This means looking at the transport system in Australia and also human migration across our nation's borders. For the climate refugee as a father and morning commuters voting for who Kai will take on a final date, we take a look at how mobility shapes Kai's world. In 2050, our transport system will have changed dramatically. Whether the grid is electric or not remains to be seen, but definitely the transport will most likely all be entirely electric. Dr. Ashkay Vij is a senior research fellow in transport policy at the Institute for Choice at UniSA. He breaks down how most of the technology of tomorrow's transport system already exists today, and how it will shape the future demand. Autonomous vehicles were technically supposed to be on the market by the end of this decade, and we were told by a number of car manufacturers five or six years ago. But that's looking increasingly uncertain. They'll probably start to come into the market in the next five to ten years, and by 2050, I imagine a significant proportion of transport will be autonomous. Cars will start talking to each other. They'll start talking to the infrastructure. That has a number of really interesting implications because if cars can talk to each other, they can platoon, so they start to go down major streets, in effect acting as trains with each car being a carriage that's come together. Unlike current transport systems, Kai uses connected vehicles that provide seamless mobility by eliminating the last mile problem. That's the distance of travel not accounted for by the main transport route, like the walk to the bus stop or the extra block they have to walk from their parked car. With autonomous vehicles, it's beautiful because they can pick you up from your doorstep. They can come together and form a platoon that can go faster than the fastest train down major arterials. And then, when they get close to your destination, they can split up again so that you go to your destination and somebody else goes to their destination. So it's door-to-door -door seamless travel, but potentially at the same price and potentially faster than traditional public transport. While not widespread, connected vehicles are cropping up on our roads now, with technology like V2X or vehicle-to-everything systems. Back in 2017, a Cadillac vehicle put in V2X into their、uh, production vehicle in the US.、Uh, end of last month, Volkswagen in Europe 
announced that they will be putting V2X into their next uh, Golf, the uh, eighth generation, which will be providing millions of vehicles on the roads that are connected. And this is just the start. So all the large OEMs are thinking about how do we make our cars smarter? Andrea Ash is the Vice President of Marketing at Coda Wireless, a software solutions company which connects vehicles to each other and to smart city infrastructure. There are also certain industries looking to adopt and expand their use of autonomous vehicles that work in tandem or as a platoon sooner than we will see on the public roads. So when you think about uh, the freight industry, where platooning is a uh, autonomous um, application, big freight trucking companies will actually adopt platooning uh, sooner than the, the general market with autonomous vehicles. Um, when you think about on mining sites, uh, autonomous vehicles are actually in operation now and they're wanting to expand further use. So there will be pockets that you will see more um, connected autonomous vehicles being used. So it will um, allow time for the public to actually understand the value of connected autonomous vehicles and help support the adoption of them. And it won't just be industry use that encourages these new modes of transport. In 2050, Kai and their fellow commuters will see huge financial incentives influencing their choices. A lot of the benefits of private car ownership disappear once you have autonomous cars. The convenience, the flexibility that private car ownership offers can potentially be offered at actually lower costs by autonomous vehicles. Plus you don't have to worry about insurance, rego, maintenance, servicing, none of that. So we're more likely to see shared consumption. All of this adds up to a decline in personal car ownership and a move towards shared consumption. This fits with Kai's worldview of inclusion and equity, as transport options become more inclusive and fit for purpose. I doubt that most households will still own two cars. Some of them may still own that one car, maybe for their weekend travel, maybe if they have a young child. You know, you don't want to install a baby seat every time you order an Uber or an Uber-like service. But of course, there's the possibility that you might have these shared mobility options that are far more tailored. So you might have a Uber for young kids, an Uber for people traveling with pets, an Uber for people with disabilities. It's hard to say, but definitely car ownership will reduce. Even if we don't go down to zero cars, we'll most likely go down to one car per household. Government policy will play an important role in the shaping of our transport system and a clear vision on where that system is headed needs to happen now, as changes in transport usage could render current infrastructure redundant. These big infrastructure projects like, like Light Rail are built for 50 to 100 years in order for them to be economically justifiable. The problem with a system like Light Rail is potentially in 10 or 20 years you might have fleets of shared autonomous cars that can provide the same level of transport, if not more, at a fraction of the cost. And so it really puts into question the viability of these big infrastructure projects. So, what should our governments be doing to plan for our transport future in 2050? Government needs to be a little more cautious about where it spends money so that it doesn't lock us into these patterns of development that are no longer optimal or fungible once a new technology comes in. So I think when you're planning, you need to plan for a certain degree of flexibility and resilience, keeping in mind all these potential disruptions. 
I suppose what it means is do not invest in high-cost infrastructure projects like light and heavy rail that lock you into a particular system. Most autonomous cars will use regular roads. They might require additional supporting intelligent transport infrastructure to allow them to navigate through urban environments. But what government can do is basically fund a lot of pilots, create um, a fertile ground for private sector to invest in these technologies, make sure that the consumer interests are protected, that small operators are protected, that we don't end up with a monopoly. A lot of these autonomous cars might not actually even be available on the market because if Ford or General Motors or whoever, Toyota, are developing the cars, but those cars aren't what's making money, it's the trip making and the servicing of individual trips that's making money, then why would they sell the cars to an Uber or a Lyft when they could run those fleets themselves and make money? This trend raises interesting implications of who runs the transport system in the future and how cars' consumer interests will stay protected. I do worry also because if we get to that stage, then there's too much private control over a city's public transport network. And so what is government's role there? Government should ideally only step in if there is a market failure, so it would be up to government to articulate what that market failure is. Do we have a single provider that has control over majority access? Do we have a monopoly? Do we have inequitable results where you know people who are disadvantaged or vulnerable in some shape or form aren't being served by these privately owned autonomous cars? So it would depend on where the failure is. A major part of our connected cities will be collective perception messaging, like the V2X technology that Coda Wireless is developing. V2X, or Vehicle to Everything, enables autonomous cars to receive all non-line-of-sight information from surrounding vehicles and infrastructure devices. A good example is if a person is walking between parked cars coming onto a road and I can't see it, but the car in front of me saw it, from its uh, sensors, it can then communicate back to me in the other vehicle that there is a person coming through these parked cars, be aware and just watch out that there is some possible vulnerable road user ahead. So it's that additional information that makes our roads so much safer. In Kaiserswald, connected, autonomous, electric and shared vehicles will be a paradigm shift in transport that improves safety, convenience and productivity while reducing carbon emissions. In the year 2018, 1.25 million people died on the road through car accidents. That's one person every 25 seconds, so that's terrible. Not only those that are actually fatal accidents, there are also a lot of people that are injured and that's over 50 million people. So what will be a benefit of a driverless vehicle is that the roads will be a lot safer for the reasons of, you know, if you're sharing intelligence amongst vehicles, you're more likely not to have an accident. Future functionality aside, one of the biggest negatives of this future system is that it could increase transport use in general. The worry is that if you reduce the cost of travel because no longer is my time spent in the car unproductive. No longer am I paying for petrol, I'm paying for cheap electricity that may or may not be produced by solar or whatever. And so if you reduce the general cost of transport, I start traveling more. 
So before I would have traveled one kilometer for groceries, now I'm going to go to that big box store by the freeway interchange that's four kilometers away. You have this concept of induced demand. And so the worry is that if the cost of transport goes down, people start living two hours away from work and you start um, to seeing more suburbanization than has ever been seen before, just because you can travel further at lower costs. For Kai and their family, it seems like they've always been on the move. I'm an activist, mostly for climate adaptation. My dad was one of the first climate refugees. Climate refugees were made up of people from the Pacific Islands, Bangladesh and Indonesia. The United Nations at the time recognised this movement and identified this group of people were being forced to leave their homes and define them as refugees. The UN estimates that by 2050 there will be up to 250 million people displaced by the effects of climate change, including rising sea levels, rising salt levels, droughts, desertification and other more extreme and frequent climate events. All those things put together mean that a whole lot of different regions in the world will be impacted. And what the UN is recognising is that these, these impacts won't be just kind of evenly distributed across the world population, that they, the impacts will be harder, of course, where there's pre-existing inequality in terms of things like you know, income and poverty and so on. Mandy Poole is the director at the Migration Museum in Adelaide, which explores the immigration and settlement history of South Australia. She says in 2020, the redefinition of this group of people as climate refugees is unforeseen. There's a bit of a move away from seeing people as sort of hapless victims and more recognising that people are actually making rational decisions about their future opportunities and acting in accordance with what they can see ahead of them. In sort of everyday language, we talk about climate change refugees, but of course people who have been displaced by climate change won't come under the technical def definition of refugees. So. The technical definition of refugees involves being persecuted and there have already been a couple of, quite a few cases actually, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, of people from low-lying islands in the Pacific arguing that they're refugees and those cases have all been dismissed because the technical definition of a refugee involves factors which can't really be proven in, in that way. So because you have to be persecuted on the basis of religion or, or a similar factor. So none of those factors come into play with climate change. So really, although people leaving low-lying Pacific Islands, for example, because of climate change would fit our everyday idea of what a refugee is, they won't technically come under the international definition of refugee. And because of the current political climate in the world, nobody is imagining that the definition of refugee is going to get widened. The inequality of climate migration left a resounding impact on Kai, who was an activist in 2050. In the early 2000s, Australia was fairly used to taking people under our humanitarian program, receiving about 10% of our permanent migration targets and floating between 10 and 15% of our total permanent intake. Mandy says this is a good grounding, but there's work to be done to accommodate increasing demands of Kai's future. It's often responded to humanitarian disasters or warfare or natural disasters sometimes and I think if Australia is to play its part in addressing migrants that are coming on the basis of climate change our humanitarian program is not going to cut it and actually we'll have to look at being more generous and thinking about the needs of the people who are migrating as well as the needs of the Australian economy so that the needs of the Australian economy has become really paramount in driving migration policy and I guess I'd be arguing that 
it's time for a bit of a rethink. Some suggestions include improving Australia's current visa programs so that we keep the doors open for individuals and families to move between Australia and their source countries. If we encourage more regular migration from countries in the Pacific, then there'll be good, strong communities in Australia and that will open the sort of growing and chain migration that can happen in those circumstances. So there'll be a sort of regular flow of people and people won't be forced to leave all of a sudden, if you like. The other pathway that, or the other sort of linked thing that people are suggesting is more specific skills-based migration. So one of the other strategies that is being suggested is that Australia strengthen its temporary work visa program, including skilled programs with specific training components, which means that people could come from the Pacific to Australia and get trained up and either return with skills or stay in Australia and help with the skills that Australia needs, which in the long term would also benefit the Pacific nations from which they're coming. So they're the kind of nuts and bolts, contributory solutions, if you like. But of course, what the Pacific nations are saying is the first thing that Australia needs to do is come up with a more consistent and robust way of cutting its emissions. Climate inaction in Australia is not likely to continue into 2050. Each year, not addressing climate change in a really robust way becomes a less and less tenable position and that Australian political discourse must reach a breaking point soon where there will be no longer any room for people who are trying not to link things like rising sea levels or increasingly ferocious bushfires to climate change and that people will no longer be able to say, well, Australia's only 1.3% of emissions, therefore it doesn't matter what we do. By 2050, Kai's family will have already experienced the reality of our attitudes to migration. We don't know exactly what that experience will be like, but Mandy does have some concerns. I am increasingly concerned by a global shift towards the right and a hardening of state positions, policies and practices against migration and refugees. I was recently at an international meeting of migration museums, so the first international meeting of migration museums called because of a perceived rise in xenophobia around the world and migration museums are committed to working against that. And it was quite sobering to sit with my colleagues from various places around the world, including the United States and Brazil and Poland, and listen to what they had to say about what they'd observed about hardening positions about migration in their countries. Australia has had a series of periods of migration from different parts of the world. For example, we know in the last 15 years that two of the three major source countries for Australia have shifted. So our three major source countries now are the UK, China and India. And I think there's always a little period of adjustment which often gets played out on the street in terms of increasing racism towards particular groups or social panic in terms of public discourse but on the whole Australia tends to kind of get over that and move along. I'd like to think that in 10 years time or by 2050 even Australia will have a kind of rational and compassionate response which also recognises that as a, a wealthy country which has a history of exporting fossil fuels. We have a responsibility to be welcoming and to be part of a global solution. The future will come from the choices we make today. Would you like this future?
This episode of Mudcast is one of seven episodes in our Seven Siblings from the Future series, produced by Radio Adelaide Podcast Works. Today's episode was produced by me, Anna Day, with series senior producer Sarah Martin. Thanks to Dr. Axe Shkavidge, Andrea Ash, and Mandy Poole for their insights in this episode, to Natalie Kafora, Elke Kleinig, Kristen Alford, and Nikki Marcel for background support and resources. The Seven Siblings from the Future podcast series is supported by MOD at the University of South Australia and is linked to an exhibition on site from November 2019 to May 2020. For more info, go to mod.org.au.